privilege to be here. Well, in our sermon this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. What song do you think is the most popular road trip song of all time? Okay, I know we're going to have a variety of answers here based off generations and preferences. I'm not asking you what your, your favorite road trip song is. I want you to, to come up with what you think is the most popular road trip song of all time. I did some research this week and I found an article published by SWNS Digital Media who took a survey across different generations on what the most popular road trip songs of all times are, all right? So I want to list the top five for you and I want you to see if your song is in the list, all right? Are you ready? Here's number five. On the Road Again by Willie Nelson. Any, uh, any, anybody got that one? All right, a couple. Number four, Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Dever. Okay, got a few. Number three, this is what I think is arguably probably the most popular uh, road trip song of all time, but it may show my age a little bit. It's Life is a Highway, okay, and particularly the Rascal Flats version that was made popular by Cars. Uh, that'll age me a little bit. Number two, Hotel California by the Eagles, and number one, Sweet Home Alabama, okay? The most popular roads, road trip song of all time, all right? So if you disagree with me or you had a different song that you think should be on the list, take it up with SWNS Digital Media, okay? Because I didn't create that list. And what you'll find if you do any research on that, there's really no consensus because it's different for each generation. But here's my point. We all enjoy music when we go on a road trip. We love the company that music or now in our age today, podcasts or audiobooks or any other form of digital media provides for us as we go on these extended trips. It occupies our minds. It helps us stay awake. It, it keeps us from just sitting in silence for endless hours. We all have our road trip music. And the psalm we're going to look at this morning could be aptly titled as one of Israel's road trip songs. Now this title, this label, is not original to me. It actually, uh, I, somehow I got it from Pastor Andrew. I don't remember when he said it or what context he said it, but I've got it written in my Bible here next to this psalm. Road trip music. And I've got it attributed to Andrew. And as I was meditating on this psalm and reflecting on it this week, it, it, it became so clear to me that this truly is the road trip music, one of the songs that Israel would have sung or recited either individually or corporately as they made their travels day to day, but in particularly up to Jerusalem. If you notice in your copy of the scriptures, you may have a heading that says, A Song of Ascents. There's a collection of psalms here, starting in Psalm 120 all the way up to Psalm 135, that have this title. These were psalms 
that were written and compiled for Israel to use during their travel up to Jerusalem where they had to travel at least three times a year for the various feasts that the Lord had established. These psalms or these songs were prayed or recited and sung by the Israelites as they traveled from their hometown to Jerusalem and they served the purpose to rehearse and remind various truths about God during various circumstances and situations. So these psalms are rightly labeled as the road trip music of Israel. And this morning, we're going to study this psalm, and what we're going to see from it are the truths about God that he gave to the Israelites so that they would meditate on and reflect on and rest in during their journey. So look with me together uh, at Psalm 121, starting in verse 1. The text says this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So what is going on in this psalm? We've already labeled it as the road trip music that Israel would have rehearsed and recited and sung. But what we tend to forget is that the way an Israelite or anybody in the ancient Near Eastern world would have had to travel is far different than how we travel. Travel today for us is primarily convenient, right? Now, you may not think that if you've ever showed up to the airport and you have to go through TSA, right? You have to hope and pray that your bag or your person is not the one randomly selected to be checked, right? I travel with our student ministry here fairly regularly. And it's almost a guarantee that every time we go through TSA, we're going to get stopped. I don't know what it is. I don't know if the the airports alert them. Like there's all these uh, shady looking kids. No, I'm kidding. They're great kids. Typically, it's some sort of water bottle or snack that gets stopped. And it's something that should be easy becomes frustrating. But when we think about travel as a whole, it's primarily safe. It's primarily speedy. And it's primarily simple. But when you think about travel throughout history, it's been much different than it is now, right? A simple Google search on what travel looked like 100 years ago will reveal that travel's very different today. In fact, I came across an article that talked about uh, a diary from an individual who took a road trip in the year 1920. They traveled from Long Beach, California to a a, a pretty small uh, city in uh, Ohio. And the trip was something like uh, 2,300 miles. Okay? That trip took them seven weeks to complete. 
seven weeks. If you do the math of those miles and what the average truck driver does today, it takes an average truck driver less than four days to complete that trip. And if you look at flights, it takes less than four hours to complete that trip. So travel over the last hundred years has greatly changed. And then if you go back to Israel and you put yourself in the sandals of an Israelite who's having to walk across a desert, who's having to travel several miles through treacherous terrain, who's having to to travel on foot, who has to carry all their necessary belongings, who doesn't have hotels or gas stations or any fast food restaurants to stop along the way and get a break or get a good night's sleep, you'll realize that travel was brutal. It was hard. And it was dangerous. So when the psalmist starts this psalm, that is the road trip music of Israel, and he says, I lift up my eyes to the hill, what he means there is something different than what we think of today. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of performing my first wedding ceremony, and the young couple uh, who I got to marry decided they were going to get married at the outdoor chapel up at Pretty Place. It's about an hour away from here. If you've never been to Pretty Place Chapel, I would highly encourage you to go. You can see on the screen, there's a picture of what it looks like. It's one of the most stunning views you may ever see. And there was something that I noticed when I was there. So I have a second picture there because you can see it a little more clearly. You can see the banner there at the top overlooking this amazing outlook on the Blue Ridge Mountains. And they quote this verse, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. When we read this verse, or it's brought to mind while we're seeing these enormous, beautiful mountains in view, or maybe we see someone post a picture of mountains on Instagram or Facebook and they use this verse as the caption, what it does is gives us a breathtaking reminder of how small we are and how amazing and incredible and gloriously powerful our God is who created this. And while that's good, that's not probably how the Israelites would have looked at mountains on their trip. When the Israelites were hiking across the desert and they came to a foot of the mountain and they looked up and this enormous mountain filled their view, their reaction was not, wow, that's amazing. My God's amazing. Their initial reaction was probably hearts that were filled with fear that were filled with fatigue, that were filled with discouragement about the harsh realities of the journeys they've been on and the potential dangers that awaited them in the mountains. They were going across the desert. They had limited supplies of food and water. They had been hiking in the hot sun all day with very little shade, extreme heat, 
probably dehydrated, possibly even sunstroke. At night, they had to sleep under the open air and under the darkness in an unfamiliar land that was filled with wild animals and wicked men that had no paved roads, no signage markings. So when they looked at those mountains, what filled their hearts and clouded their view was not, wow, God's awesome, but what am I going to do? Like, what's coming along the way? There were no lack of dangers to be faced or fears to be crippled on this journey. Rather, they were marked with fatigue and fear. Does that sound like any of us this morning? How is your life marked? Are you faced with fears and fatigue? Are trials and troubles overwhelming you? Are frustrations or situations unbearable, never-ending or all-consuming for you? See, what we see in this text is that it connects to our lives as believers because we're on a journey too. We're headed to Zion just like the Israelite traveler. We're going to a city whose builder and maker is God, whose ruler is King Jesus, and our journey is our lifetime of following Jesus. And we too are surrounded and faced with mountains that fill our view and fears that cloud our hearts. I love this quote. Um, I brought this little book along and I would highly encourage it if you've uh, never read it. It's called Marching to Zion. It's by, written by a guy named Rhett Dodson. It's a little devotional book on the, uh, the Psalms of Ascent. And as he was reflecting on Psalm 121, he said this, as Christians reading this psalm, the words of the ancient pilgrims reverberate in our own experience. We too are on a journey to Jerusalem. We're traveling to the heavenly Mount Zion, the final destination of Christ's people. We're pilgrims headed to heaven for the greatest feast of all, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our journey is also dangerous. Many things in this life cause us to fear. Everything from terrorism to the economy. Will we be safe? Will we have enough? But our, pilgrim, our pilgrimage also poses particular spiritual dangers. Depression, doubt, spiritual declension, loss, suffering, these and many other perils lie in our path. So what trials or tribulations are you experiencing this morning? What doubts are you dealing with along the path of looking to Jesus on your way to the heavenly city? What fears are you facing? What mountain or mountains stand before you and threaten to overtake you? If you find yourself here today or, or if you've been here before, 
or even for those who haven't been here, but will in the future. And for those of us who have looked and seen only the mountains in front of us, we too will look at this again. We must rehearse to ourselves like the Israelites, the truths that God has given us. So what are that? What are those truths? God's our helper and our keeper. So in him, we can confidently hope. The first thing we need to look at in this text is where that source of hope comes from. Look again at verses one and two. The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The questions that arose in the heart of the pilgrim whose view was filled with the mountain, whose heart was clouded by all the fears that the mountain represented, he's asking, where does my help come from? When he got to the foot of the mountain, he looked at it and he said, what am I going to do? Where can I turn to? How is this going to work out? Who can I look to for help? Do you ever have those questions in your mind? What causes them to arise in your mind? For some of us, maybe it's work. Maybe in this season of economic uncertainty, you're not sure about the security of your job. Maybe your company is going through rounds of layoffs and you survived the first or the second round, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what's coming down the road? Am I next? What am I going to do? Maybe it's financial situations that cause us fear or dread or or bring such great stress. How am I going to pay for my mortgage and pay to keep food on the table and take care of my kids so that they can have the life I want them to have? How am I going to pay for these bills that are coming down the pike? I mean, I got dentist bills. I got medical bills. I've got utility bills. How am I going to pay for these things? Sometimes it's our personal life. My marriage is falling apart. Is it really fixable? My kids are a mess. My own health is failing and my heart is wandering. God, what am I going to do? How is this going to work out? What is it that leaves you wondering where your hope and help will come from? Not only that, let me ask you this, where are you tempted to look first for your hope and help? Because if we're honest, our natural tendency is not to look up to God, it's to look at the mountain. And when the mountain fills our view, we start trying to scheme little paths about how we're going to conquer that mountain and what we're going to do if certain situations come. We don't look to God 
until we're all out of options. So where are you tempted to look? Are you tempted to look to something to be your hope and help? Whether it's money, whether it's a possession, whether it's a status or a position, maybe circumstances to change? Are you tempted to look to someone? Well, if I, if, if I could just get this relationship figured out, then everything will be okay. If I just had this person in my life, everything would be okay, right? Or let's make it really personal for us here at Calvary. If we just had a pastor, then it'll all work out. It'll be okay. Are we going to look to a person to be our hope and help? The psalmist points us lovingly to the only true source where hope and help can be found. Look at Psalm 121 verse 2. He says this, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The source of hope and help for you and for me and for Calvary is the Lord. It's what the Israelites needed to remind themselves of regularly. And it's what you and I need to anchor ourselves to daily. And it points us to the second thing we see in this text, which is the substance of our hope. Look back at verse two. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We know these answers. But oftentimes, like the Israelites here, we're tempted to turn our eyes to something else or someone else. And when we turn our eyes away, we begin to forget God. And then when we finally turn our eyes to God, we begin to doubt God. Can I really trust you? Why hasn't this worked out yet? The psalmist is telling us in these verses, here's why you can trust God. Because your help comes from the Lord. Well, who is this Lord and why can he be trusted? Verse two, he's the creator. He's the maker of heaven and earth. So the God who made all the earth and everything in it, including the mountains, is the one who's here to help you when your view is filled with the mountains. His creative work demonstrates his unequal power and majesty. All the heavens and all the earth and everything in them look to the Lord for their creation and for their being, their, their being sustained. The, 
The creative God is the God who's helping you. He's also the covenant-keeping God. If you look back at verse 2 and notice maybe your scripture has that word LORD in all caps, that represents the name of God that he revealed to himself when he made a covenant with the people of Israel. His name is Yahweh or Jehovah. He's the covenant-keeping God. This is the God that Israel had history with. So when an Israelite heard this psalm and they asked the question in the face of their fears, in the face of their doubts, in the face of all the problems that they had, and the answer was, who's our help? It's Yahweh. What came to mind for them was all the history that God had with the Israelites. He protected them. He was faithful to them. He provided for them. And so as they traveled these paths, they could have hope that was fueled by the history they had with God. As they traveled the treacherous path, their foot would not slip as the journey stretched on and the fatigue set in and they slept in the open elements and in the cover of the night, the Lord would not sleep so they could. As they hiked through the heat of the desert, the Lord would shade them as they slept in the cool of the night and the open air with no walls around them, the Lord would cover them. They had history with God. So what history do you have with God? Where have you seen his faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, and his love in your life? If we were to sit down together one-on-one or if we were to have an open testimony time We could be here for hours recounting the goodness and the faithfulness of God in different ways in our lives. And you know what it would do for us? It would fuel our hope. So often we get clouded with the mountain view. It fills our vision so that that's all we can see. That's all we can think about. And we take our eyes off of the the very history God's given to us that he intends for us to look back to and to fuel us in hoping in him and trusting in him and resting in him as we face mountains or valleys or trials or tribulations or fears in our life. It doesn't mean our problems will go away. It doesn't mean that we can just simply act like they're not real or that they get easier or somehow they're not as painful. But our history with God strengthens us with hope for the future because we've seen God prove his faithfulness to the end. So what's your history with God? This brings us to the final thing in the text that we need to see. Not only 
does this text show us the source of our hope or the substance of our hope, but it also points us to the security of our hope. So look again at verses seven and eight. It says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Well, what does it mean that the Lord will keep the believer or the Israelite from all evil? I mean, does this mean that evil won't touch us or that evil won't tempt us or that evil won't affect us? Well, we know that from our own experiences. We know the experience of living in a sinful, broken, evil world. I mean, believers get sick. Some of you have gotten sick. Some believers don't get better. Some believers die. Death is a result of evil. Believers experience the ups and downs of the economic and political market that is constantly fluctuating and it affects our finances, it affects our livelihoods, it affects our, how we feel and what we think about. It affects our jobs, our future. Believers suffer. They experience trials and pain and suffering both from without and from within. Believers are not immune to the effects and consequences of evil, and we all are living testimonies of that. Not only this, but believers also are not immune to temptations towards evil. I mean, if we're honest here this morning, and I hope we are, we're all sitting here broken, sinful, wandering people. We're here only by the grace of God. Believers sin, they mess up big time. We're not immune to the temptations towards evil. So what does the psalmist mean when he says, the Lord will keep you from all evil? How do we reconcile that? And he's not talking about the evil that surrounds us or that from time to time, more often than we'd like to admit, arises within us. He's talking about the evil that threatens to take us and keep us from all eternity, which is where we all are headed apart from Christ. He's saying final evil will not win because in Christ, we've been purchased and redeemed. We've been taken from the kingdom of darkness. Our master is Satan. We've been taken from that and we've been transferred or placed into a new kingdom whose ruler and king is Jesus. We've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but have been given new life. Evil 
will not have the final word. That's what the psalmist is saying. And as the scriptures so beautifully promise us, in Romans chapter 8, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of Christ. This text points us to the intimate, personal care that God has for us. Look back at verse 8. He says, you're going in and you're coming out. The Lord is keeping us from all evil and that keeping work that he's doing on our behalf, it entails every aspect of our life. Our going out and our coming in, that represents the, the, the big moments of life all the way down to the small moments. It's like this. When you leave for work in the morning, the Lord is keeping you. And when you return home at night, the Lord is keeping you. And all those moments in between, he's keeping you. He's present. He's aware. He's actively working, helping us, keeping us. And this is the central point of the psalm. That believers must continually ground and anchor themselves to. The Lord is keeping your life. He's watching over your life. He's preserving your life. He's guarding your life, every aspect of your life, so that no matter what mountains you come across in your path, and no matter what fears or struggles or trials are represented by those mountains, the Lord is keeping you all your days so that evil doesn't have the final word. I want to go back to that devotional I pointed you to because he summarizes this so powerfully. I don't think I could do it any better. He says this, the Lord will keep you in every way and he will keep you every day, including his eternal day. The horizon of these promises stretches into eternity. One day you will go out for the last time. One day you will come in no more. And even then, the Lord will keep you and bring you into glory. That's powerful. One day, your journey on the way to the heavenly city is going to come to an end. You will go out for the last time and you won't come in anymore. But you'll be brought in by Jesus to your eternal dwelling place. Unlike the Israelites who were singing this song, they were waiting for the promised Messiah, the one that God had said, he's the one who will keep you. Unlike them, we have the whole story in view. We know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. 
He's the son of God who came to redeem and restore, to give people hope. And he promised himself that he himself would keep us. During his life, as he taught in the book of John, he says, all that the father has given to me will come and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you remember that word from last week? I will never believe. Well, here's the opposite. Jesus says, I won't cast you out. Jude writes to believers and he says in his prayer for them as as he's encouraging them to remain faithful, now to him who is able to keep you, that's Jesus. From stumbling and for the express purpose of presenting you blameless before the Father. To him be glory and honor. Believers, that's your reality. Jesus is keeping you. And there's no way you can get out of his hand. There's no way he will ever turn his face towards you because, or away from you because he was already turned away from the Father. So the Father poured out all the wrath for our sin on Jesus. So our reality is we can have confident hope and confident trust because our God is keeping us. There may be one or some here this morning who are outside that hope. Maybe what we've done today in singing or in uh, taking uh, the communion uh, elements, or maybe even here in, in the time where we've looked at the word of God, this doesn't make sense to you. You're trying to understand it, but you're sitting outside the hope that we're talking about, that as those who have come to know Jesus, we have a certain and secure hope that our God is keeping us. And what I want you to hear this morning is that hope is offered to you. That hope can be yours. You can be certain and secure that God will help you and he will keep you from this time forth all the way to the end because of the work of Jesus. His gift of grace is offered to you. I want to end this sermon this morning with one final thought you will go back with me to the Israelites traveling through the desert, arriving at the foot of the mountain, and this song comes to mind, and they begin to rehearse it, what we tend to forget is that when the song concluded, the Israelites still had a journey to go on. They still had a mountain in front of them. The song didn't scare away the wild animals or the wicked men. It didn't solidify the trail that could so easily 
cause them to trip or stumble. It didn't cause the temperature to become perfect. They still had all the things in front of them that clouded their vision and caused fear to arise in their heart. This song didn't cause those things to go away. They still had to go through them. But what they realized is as they passed through them, the truths that they sang and they rehearsed and they anchored themselves to proved to be true. The travelers passed through the mountains and the valleys and God did help them and he did keep them. And the truth we can anchor ourselves to this morning is that God will do that for us too. He is your helper. He's your keeper. He will keep your going in or your going out and your coming in as he has all the days of your life from this day forth and forevermore. Our Father, we thank you for words that you've given to us that provide for us and point us to the source of true hope that give us the true substance of hope. It's your character. It's your presence. And God, it gives us great security in our hope because your promises are sure. Your promises prove true. So God, I, I don't know all of the problems and the mountains that are represented in this room. But God, you've given us your word that tells us to lift our eyes past the mountains to you who alone can offer us true help and true hope. And we rejoice that you will keep us till the end. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. God, we cling to these truths this morning. In your name.